You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dana Priest, an investigative reporter for the Washington Post. And today is World Press Freedom Day. Later in the program, we'll have Senator Amy Klobuchar here to talk about RSF's ranking of press freedom in the United States. But first, we wanna go to the dire media situation in Russia. To do that, we're joined by two Russian, sorry, we're joined by two reporters from TV Rain. TV Rain was forced to shut down in the first days of the war. Joining us today is the news director and anchor of TV Rain, Ekaterina Korakatse, and its editor in chief, Tikan Zaiko. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Where are you? Where are you now? We're now in California because I I have a talk in uh, in the Stanford University. So we are spending a few days here in California, and uh, today we're going back home to Belize, Georgia, which is our home now. Temporarily. Thank you so much. Can you take us back to the to the to March fourth when when Russia when Putin announced the new crackdown on the media with a new law? What what kind of decision did you have to make? How would it have impacted you? Why did you why did you decide to leave? Well, frankly, we left two days before March fourth, uh, right after a website of TV Rain was blocked by by state uh, censorship uh, ministry. That's how we call it. Uh, so, and uh, the the atmosphere in Russia for journalists uh, was becoming worse and worse, and we. We understood that uh, being journalists in Russia started to become an uh, illegal profession. And uh, right after our website was blocked, we received an information that police was going to search our office. So, and this new law was already uh, proposed by lawmakers. It was not adopted yet, but it was proposed already. And we uh, heard some rumors about possible arrests of journalists. So that's why we and um, some dozens of our uh, colleagues decided to 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 leave the country because we understood that it was not safe anymore to stay there. And also remember about the threats that we were getting, yeah. personal threats, uh, me and Tikhon uh, both messages. I've got thousands of messages. Uh, during one night it was 1,600 messages and there were people texting me personally that they know where I live, that they know my address, they know where my mother lives. Of course, ridiculous because my mother died years ago, but still, it meant something. Um, I mean, it was not the first thing that we were thinking about, the threats. The, the law that Tihon has just mentioned was much more important and much more serious and dangerous for us. But still, the, the atmosphere was yeah. terrible, you know, with this nonstop calling and nonstop messaging uh, and this uh, representatives of state who were giving us some signals that it was impossible, impossible to, you know, leave the life that we were used to. The life has changed totally. Russia is not the country that we knew. It was authoritarian before, but now it, it became dictatorship. Okay, Tikan, well, both of you, I hear you're raising a baby journalist there, so welcome. <laughs> um, I'm trying to feed him with milk. Just not to interrupt, but yeah. Um, but yeah, he's right here. Okay, no problem. We've all had that happen. So can you tell us um, what are Russians seeing today on television? 
which is the most important media there still. Well, uh, first, I would disagree with uh, the idea that it was still the most important media because this over the years, the situation has had, has been changing and now uh, more and more people are using Internet and uh, those who are watching TV, they are older. Those who are using Internet, they are younger. But if we look at what TV is showing these days, we will see that um, TV changed its programming since the beginning of the war. There is no uh, entertainment uh, shows on the TV now. Uh, the t time slots of these entertainment shows, they are being uh, replaced by uh, by um, new shows. And all these new shows, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy propaganda. It's a crazy propaganda about the war, about how Russia is being attacked by the United States and it uh, has to defend itself in Ukraine, about neo-Nazis uh, and nationalists in uh, in Ukraine, etc., etc. It's just the it's 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 an amazing garbage. I I, yeah, I would add that I was you know I've been watching them uh, all the time because I needed for for my job uh, to understand what's going on there and. One of the recent recent shows that I was watching was just terrible and, and devastating because one of the faces of Russian propaganda, Margarita Simonyan, she's an editor-in-chief of RT Russia Today, was saying that Vladimir Putin would prefer to start Third World War, that he would prefer to use nuclear weapon, uh, you know, rather than, uh, rather than take, take this... Uh, uh, reality of losing in Ukraine and I think this is really very very serious they are preparing Russian society to the world uh, no, third world war they are they are doing things that are just killing us and I think they are all, personally the faces of Russian propaganda are ready to be in a bunker with Vladimir Putin when the world start when the world war three starts uh, but they are preparing us to be, I don't know, killed with the nuclear weapon of Vladimir Putin if something so, goes wrong for them. Are Russians seeing the casualties from the battlefield at all? Do Russians see the casualties? Well, uh, you know, the, the Russians only get just a small part of the information about, about the ongoing situation in uh, in uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, because of course state TV and state propaganda, they do not tell people about the real situation. They, they do not people. Uh, they, they do not tell its audience about the fact that uh, Russia, for example, lost the battle for Kiev, and that uh, uh, Russian army is losing uh, is losing hundreds of uh, soldiers uh, every week. Uh, of course, uh, Russians know that there are some deaths of Russian soldiers in Ukraine. But uh, propaganda is telling that these people uh, were uh, that these people died like heroes uh, defending Russia from its enemies on uh, on its borders, etc., etc. And they they are trying to somehow justify deaths of these young soldiers. But of course, again, uh, they are not reporting the real scale. Of, uh, of deaths and casualties among uh, Russian soldiers. Okay, Ekaterina, um, Putin's banned Twitter and Facebook, but are you still able to broadcast somehow? Um, and are people in Russia still seeing you broadcast somehow? 
Yes, they still have YouTube, and uh, it, it's not banned uh, and shut down so far, but eventually it will be. Uh, they have, you know, a number of reasons why they don't ban it, but they will. Um, so we have launched uh, our YouTube channel as a lot of other journalists. We have YouTube streams, uh, you know, almost daily, uh, me and Tihon and others from TV Rain, uh, we can see that the level of, you know, demand of uh, alternative sources of information in Russia is really high. It gives us a huge hope, you know, that there is not a situation when you can say that the whole country is supporting this terrible war, that they're supporting this war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, in Ukraine. We can see that uh, people are watching the small streams, you know, modest uh, streams uh, on YouTube. They are interested. They text us, they uh, follow us, uh, they support us, they donate. It, it, it really means a lot. And we talk about the situation in Ukraine. We interview people. Uh, and a lot of our guests, uh, and among them are high-ranking guests, they do understand what the situation is right now in Russia. And that's why they give us interviews yeah. in spite of the fact that we have this, you know, um, not a television station, something different, but they still do give us interviews. Yes, and also a lot of people in Russia, they are using VPN services and other services to get through these uh, restrictions, and for example, to get access to Facebook, Instagram. And what is funny that you um, that you could see that uh, Russian officials, for example, Maria Zakharova, the spokesperson for <laughs> for uh, for Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they they, they all are using these banned uh, social networks, social yeah. networks such as Facebook, yeah. for example. Yeah, she posts on Instagram and, and Facebook, uh, in spite of the fact that the, the, these social media are you know declared extremists in Russia. Yeah. So I was just going to ask you whether you think uh, big tech or the international community is helping with finding innovative ways to get your programming and other alternative programming into Russia. Are they being supportive uh, or enough support? I don't think that they are supportive enough now, but uh, I must say that the, it is my huge hope for the big tech. I think that now um, when we unfortunately are seeing the the uh, creature uh, of uh, the creation of uh, this new iron curtain in Russia, but not iron curtain like it was in Soviet Union. Now it is digital iron curtain. So I think now when we are when we are witnessing the creation of this uh, digital iron curtain, I think it is crucial that big tech would help independent media organizations and um, social media to get through this iron curtain. I'm not a, uh, I'm, 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 I'm a zero in, uh, in um, technologies, but uh, I'm absolutely sure that technologies are always one step ahead of the repressions and uh, restrictions. And also it's very important that Russian society is not, um, it's not similar. It's divided it's very complicated and there are as Tikhon has mentioned there are young people young generation who were grown up during Putin's uh, presidency he's been at the power for 20 plus years but he did not ban internet in Russia uh, the situation in Russia was not 
Um, similar to what we were witnessing, seeing in North Korea, for example, there is a whole generation of young and free people who are used to be free, who are used to use internet, who are used to go online and watch anything they wanted, talk about anything they wanted. So to them, this situation is unacceptable. And we, we have a, you know, we have a huge hope and, and I, I really believe that these people will change the situation in the country and we will help them. Well, if I could follow up and have you elaborate a little bit more on that, do you actually feel that there are cracks uh, in Russia today? How do you measure that? Crack, what do you mean? Is there lack of support for Putin? Is it growing lack of support for, for Putin and the well, war? The main problem is that we we know nothing about what do Russians actually think. But what we do know is that when we see these polls showing 83% of support of Putin and support of the war, we understand that these polls could not be trusted. Just imagine, for example, uh, a poll in, uh, in Germany in 1942. Do you support the uh, great uh, uh, the, the, the great war uh, of Germany defending itself from the other world. Of course, uh, all, all the people in this situation of the fear and terror would, uh, would answer yes. The same situation is in Russia now. Uh, Russia used to be an authoritarian state. state now it is worse than an authoritarian state, and of course sociology could not exist in an authoritarian state. But as long as I understand, Russian society is divided in three parts. The first part, are people who are against Putin, who are against war, but they are depressed, they are afraid of speaking out because it's too dangerous, because of these new laws and because of, uh, uh, of Russia being state. The second part uh, is uh, people who uh, support Putin, who support the war, they have a uh, um, they have different uh, explanations for it. Some of them are brainwashed by propaganda. Some of them are old and they uh, want Soviet Union to be to be back. Uh, some of them are just feeling comfortable in the system. But there is a third part, which is the most important part now, I guess. These are people who are hesitating. These are people who are in denial. These are people who are not ready to admit that the country where they grew up uh, is committing war crimes and is doing terrible things. And I think that this part of the and these people they they are smart, they are educated, they just don't want to believe in this terrible situation. So and I think that this part of the of the population is the main target for the independent journalists right now. This is the part of the population with whom we should talk more and more uh, to explain that this is happening. Unfortunately, this is terrible. This is this is uh, devastating, but this is happening and we just have to admit it. Uh, Ekaterina, can you give us a, a picture of the Russian media who are outside Russia and who are broadcasting into Russia besides yourself? Are there are there just a few? Are there are there dozens? What's the what's that situation like? Well, um, can you imagine that you know everyone 
everyone. Like I, I, I know just a couple of people who are still there in Russia. Almost everyone left. And, uh, you know, it, during Putin's presidency, um, it was hard to work as journalists in Russian Federation, but it was possible. It was still possible. We, TV Rain, were declared foreign agents in um, August of 2021. But still, it, I mean, it was uh, uncomfortable. It was complicated. But still, we did have a, an opportunity to go on with our, with our work. And the same was happening with a lot of journalists, hundreds, thousands of them, hundreds and thousands of independent journalism, journalists who were creating big and small, uh, you know, mostly small media projects. And now they're all out of the country, almost all, all of them. And now we, we can see, for example, in Georgia, Tbilisi um, alone, like 10, hundreds, hundreds of journalists, they do different things. They create... Um, they create YouTube streams as we do, YouTube, small YouTube channels, they create new media organizations, they, um, you know, uh, they record small interviews, they uh, write articles. Uh, there is a very active journalistic society. I have not met anyone who would say that they don't want to work anymore, that they are changing profession, that they want to start doing something else. They, they, they don't want, they, they, that they want to, you know, start from scratch and, for example, um, go to work in bank or in PR or whatever, you name it. Uh, it means that there is a huge, uh, huge amount of people, very active, very well-educated, uh, English-speaking and other language-speaking society, uh, community of people who will find who will find power and who will fight for democratic free Russia? Uh, it's gonna it's gonna be hard, definitely, and it's not gonna it's not gonna be changed in a day or in a week. But still, I think that there is a huge chance of getting back to to the country. How can people in the United States or in the world community support those journalists that you just talked about? It's important to, uh, Tichon will add, of course, but um, I think it's really important not to forget that we exist. It, uh, it's really important to communicate, to give us interviews, to remember that we are doing something something important, uh, not only for Russia, but also for the, uh, for the whole world. Russia is 140 million people country. It's the biggest country on earth. Uh, and it's I don't want I don't want to you know face the situation when you know people in Washington or in Berlin or in Paris would say okay this is another North Korea let's let's forget about it uh, it should not happen like that because Russia is too important uh, Russia should not be isolated Russia should be changed Vladimir Putin will eventually um, eventually will I don't know something will happen with him he is not immortal and it, it, things change you know. And we need to be prepared for uh, for the new for the new situation. Russia should not be for, forgotten. I think it's important to communicate. It's important to give interviews. It's important to remember that Russia exists, and it's important to support people who can change things.
what do you, what yes, do you I will just add that. Um, also, I think it's very important not to help the Russian propaganda because the Russian propaganda is spreading the narrative about so-called Russophobia in the West. Russophobia. Russophobia in the West when, for example, uh, uh, Russian concerts are being cancelled uh, or uh, all the Russians are uh, are denied in getting visas or in getting bank accounts, etc., etc. It only helps Russian propaganda. It doesn't help with the sanctions. It only helps Russian propaganda to to say that there is a Russia phobia in the West, and the, and these people, some of them, after this, uh, will, will will choose side of uh, of the Russian authorities. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I think you have to like, understand that there are Russians and there are Russians. Okay. Knowing that there's so many journalists outside the country that are still working, and also that the Russian Foreign Services have agents outside of Russia, have there been any safety problems for those journalists? Not as, no, not, we not don't that I'm aware of. Not, not we, that I'm aware of. We don't I, think about that. Um, Either, I remember um, I remember the moments, can you catch Misha because he's, you know, just trying to jump from the table. I'm sorry, sorry. Um, I, I remember the moment when I was waiting every single day that uh, special forces, representatives of Russian police would come at the morning you. because they usually come. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we were, yeah, we were waiting for Russian police officers to visit us uh, early morning. Uh, they usually come at six o'clock with search, and I was always wa waiting for this and trying to be prepared. And me and Tihon, we were uh, we were discussing what should we do if they come, how how should we behave? Um, would it be a trauma for kids because we have two? And um, you know, you, you live in this every single day, and I, I, I was almost used to it in Russia that they could come, that they could arrest Tihon or me, and I was thinking, what should, what should we do with the kids if they arrest both of us, and so on and so forth. So now, after we left Russia, this is the period of time when we just breathe, you know, and, and we work, and we work hard, and this is the period of time when we don't think about threats and danger of Russian, you know, special forces officers or someone like that, agents visiting us uh, wherever we are. This is the time when we don't want to think about it. We don't, want, we don't want to be scared. We want to go on with our working, which is important, I think. Thank you. Well, I have to ask you the question on everyone's mind, which is how do you see this war ending? I don't know. I don't have an answer, frankly. Um, I think this uh, situation is so unpredictable, and I think the time is so faster now than it used to be. So I think we will be surprised by by how this war will. I, I you know, okay. honestly, I think that um, I think that the the uh, concentration of evil is so big that it's it's gonna explode and it's gonna end somehow very soon because we are now seeing one man killing civilians 
without any provocation, without any ground for this, or without any anything that could explain why he's doing this. I mean, there is no explanation for, for any murder or killing people, but, you know, in, in this particular case, there is just nothing, nothing that could explain what he's doing. And there are, there are millions of people who are watching this right now. And I think that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is just, is just an evil. He is a villain and there is villain and there is a victim. There is a black and white situation and it's going to end very soon because it's 21st century. It cannot go like it was, uh, it was years ago. It's not going to, it's not going to last for five years or more. I think it's going to last less. Let me ask you a bit about uh, your colleagues at TV Rain. Are they all out of the country? Are you communicating and are you making plans for going back? Well, of course, we're making plans about going back. When we when when we have an opportunity to go back, we will uh, fly back with the first plane. But uh, now, uh, dozens of our journalists are abroad, and um, we are now uh, considering our options about relaunch of TV Rain. I think it will happen in a, in a few months from a, somewhere from um, somewhere from Europe. Uh, because we see that the demand, the request for an independent media, the request for an independent information, the request for TV Rain is very high. So we just have to go on and we, we will do it very soon. Great. Thank you so much and please stay safe. Uh, we are out of time now. Thank you for your time. Ekaterina and Tikon and good good luck to you. Now we're honored to have Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota, to talk to us about the situation of press freedom in the United States. Welcome. First, though, well, I wanted you. to first, though, I wanted to break in just with uh, a little news that's uh, rattling around everywhere today, which is the unprecedented leak of a draft decision by the Supreme Court about abortion. This is something. Uh, Politico published yesterday, and I'm sure you have thoughts about it. Uh, I do, and I think it is um, not completely unrelated to some of the issues we're having on the press front, um, because uh, right now uh, we have a court uh, that is more conservative than anything we've seen in over a century, and basically they are uh, reversing, it appears, it's a leaked document, we don't know what the final uh, opinion will be, 50 years of precedent where two of the justices even in the last decade themselves have said that it was uh, the law of the land to quote one or that another said that it had been affirmed over and over again. Um, and so what this will mean, the implications, Dana, is that uh, we will have abortion will be considered a banned and not allowed um, in many, many states. Over a dozen of them have triggers that would basically create that situation. We would have over 20 states uh, uh, that would ban it. Uh, we would have a patchwork of laws. We would have women driving in cars or buses to get um, to the reproductive care. And yet 80% by one poll, 80% of Americans don't believe that we should do this. So um, this is going to be resolved first. We'll attempt in the Congress. We'll do everything we can um, to see where the votes are to be able to 
codify Roe v. Wade into law. There will be battles in each state, and then we will head into the election. And in the end, Dana, I firmly believe uh, that a women's choice is going to be on the ballot. Also, birth control is going to be on the ballot because the first line of this opinion, this leaked opinion, says abortion, the word abortion is not in the Constitution. Well, guess what? Gay marriage isn't in the Constitution. Birth control isn't in the Constitution. All of these rights that people consider their fundamental rights in the modern days have flowed from interpretations of the Constitution, which are completely justified in the modern day. And they're basically going back to a Neanderthal time in how they are interpreting the Constitution. So who knows what's next? And how close do you think you are to having the votes to write new, new legislation? Well, right now, um, we know that we have the vast majority of Democrats on board. The House has already passed this. But remember, even if we get one or two Republicans with us who are pro-choice, um, we don't get to 60 unless we pick up, for some reason, more Republicans that we could imagine. That means we'd have to reverse the filibuster, which we recently tried to do for the very important voting bill that I led, um, and we were not able to do it. So we would have to reverse the filibuster, get the support to do it, um, and then we could, in fact, pass a bill codifying Roe v. Wade into law. So that's what you're going to see unfolding on the Senate floor in the next few weeks. Great, thank you. Back to World Press Freedom Day. Well, first, yes. I understand that you you grew up in a household of journalists. Can you can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, my dad uh, was a first a uh, with the uh, Associated Press, proud to do that. He actually called uh, with two of his colleagues the 1960 election for John F. Kennedy. Minnesota was one of three states that was still out, and he predicted how they would uh, vote up on the Iron Range, uh, and he was right, a heavily Catholic area. And I still remember the AP bureau chief saying to my dad, my dad reported this story to me, I uh, had just been born, uh, reported to me that um, they, the guy in New York said to the three guys in Minneapolis, I have two words for you guys, be right. Uh, from there, and they were. Uh, from there, he went on to the Star Tribune and became newspaper columnist, uh, national newspaper columnist of the year, interviewed everyone from um, Bears coach Mike Ditka to Ronald Reagan to Ginger Rogers. Uh, let's just say oh. he enjoyed the Ginger Rogers interview the most. Uh, but he firmly believed in the freedom of the press. That's what I grew up with. Um, knowing a lot of reporters, knowing that, you know, you're, you're never going to like everything that's written about you, that's for sure. Um, and as President Biden said uh, when he introduced uh, Trevor Noah, who, of course, made merciless fun of him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend, the last things that the president said was, you know what, I'm going to strap myself in. I have no idea what you're going to say about me. But one thing I know is in America, you're not going to jail. In Moscow, different story. So we have to remember with all of our warts and improvements we can make in our own country, and we can talk about them today, um, that in fact there are countries now, um, whereas what we saw the horrific uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, there are other countries uh, that treat reporters as enemies of the state, have them murdered, have them poisoned as in Russia, have them incarcerated for long periods of time. Um, or they get they lose their lives covering battles like we saw in um, in Ukraine um, just over that same 
dinner event to see the faces of these young journalists, so young, losing their lives just seeking the truth. So right now, I'm so glad they did this international report because it just calls attention on World Press Freedom Day of what's on the line here. The very freedom of our democracy is on the line. If you don't have anyone holding people accountable, whether it's in a city council in Minnesota or whether it's on the stage of war in Ukraine, um, you are never gonna have true democracies. You mentioned arrests in Russia. Well, there are over 200 reporters arrested in, 2000, in 2020 uh, for, for doing their job. And Reporters Without Borders has given us this sorry ranking again in the 40s. So what do you make of the situation in, in the United States? Do you, you see it getting better at all or worse? So let's talk about uh, that. And then I want to talk a little bit about the Khashoggi bill uh, that I lead that would help us to hold some of these extreme regimes accountable. Um, getting at what happened uh, to Jamal Khashoggi. But in the U.S., here's my views. Uh, number one, we've gotten through four years of attacks on the press from the former president, uh, which did a lot of damage. Um, at least that is uh, behind us in terms of the rhetoric from the Oval Office. Uh, number two, um, we have a situation where um, we do not have um, enough local journalists. Since 2005, almost 2,200 local newspapers across America, uh, which accounts for more than a quarter of all American newspapers, have closed. So that certainly doesn't help our numbers when you have that going on. Um, ad revenue for U.S. newspapers plummeted from over $37 billion in 08 to less than $9 billion in 2000. At the same time, Facebook and Google went up. They're worth now over $2 trillion combined. They became advertising titans. Something really smells here. And that is that the news organizations in the U.S., actually other countries are doing better on this front now, are not getting compensated for their feed. And that hurts the actual news gatherers, the reporters that do it. So uh, Senator Kennedy of Louisiana and I have a bipartisan bill Buck and Cicilline, again, bipartisan duo, have it in the House, which basically would allow um, newspapers and local broadcasters, local TVs to leverage their bargaining power by together negotiating with the big tech companies. Uh, because right now, and that would give them four years to do it under our proposal. And then at least there's some leverage for them to get rates that can help them pay for the reporters. Uh, and we have mounting support for that bill. It's called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. Do you think there are other ways, new ways, that the government can support local media? Some people have even suggested that it, it try to underwrite local media in particular. Well, I mean, you have a lot of new models developing um, in some of the, you know, markets that uh, with areas that wouldn't support a paper of the size of the Washington Post or the New York Times. Um, and that would be nonprofit models. Uh, we have seen that a number of times with people turning the organizations into that. We certainly know that has worked successfully. It's not always easy listening to the tote bag fundraising drives, but that has worked for uh, public radio, <laughs> national public radio. And I think you're going to see um, some of that. We already have one in Minnesota that's been um, um, lauded by many called MinPost. A um, number of retired journalists that started it. I know in Chicago, one of their papers is uh, turning into that. So I think you're gonna you're gonna see some of that. Um, and um, we also 
um, are working to pass the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, uh, which would actually help Americans pay for newspaper subscriptions, making oh. the case that people should be able to have access um, to um, to uh, news. But I can't tell you the importance in today's world. No one's asking for a free ride. They're asking for for fair compensation for the work they do in gathering the news. And and if you don't think it's an issue, look what happened in Australia when they uh, their government there said we're going to make you guys. Uh, Facebook and Google, you're going to have to pay for uh, the news um, like you should to compensate. And they, because of their laws, they could do it by law. They literally tried to withdraw from those markets. They threatened to take their services down. And actually, one of them did take some links down in those markets. And then there was such an international outcry uh, that they put them back up and and uh, went on. But this is what we're talking about with monopolies. Monopolies can do whatever they want. And if we want to protect the First um, Amendment, we have to make sure the news gatherers are compensated for their work. Senator, you also brought up our colleague Jamal Khashoggi, who was brutally murdered by Saudi Arabia several years ago. And you have the you've introduced the Jamal Khashoggi Accountability Act. What what exactly would that do? So what it would do is it would require the State Department to document electronic surveillance and online harassment against journalists. Um, then it's not in their human rights reports. And I know as someone that's led a bunch of bills on human trafficking, it actually means something when that's in uh, the State Department reports and countries um, kind of measure themselves up against and they put reforms in place. So that is something. Yes, we just had this survey, which was so important, but it would be very good if our government did this. Uh, second, placing targeted sanctions against individuals in foreign countries for committing human rights violation against journalists. We can see the effect that sanctions do have in other settings. And then finally, restricting foreign aid to government entities in the event that a senior official commits a human rights violation against a journalist. So it's basically using carrots and sticks here, right? The I guess the carrot is here, there's this report. If you do well, you're gonna go up in the report. The sticks are some of the things you can hold back um, if these countries engage in this, and all of this creates incentives to not um, to not kill people or uh, imprison them uh, just because they're doing their job of reporting. And it's by the way, the legislation is endorsed by Reporters Without Borders, Pan America, the Project on Mideast Democracy, uh, Freedom House, the Committee to Protect Journalists, um, and so we also have a House companion. And Senator Leahy is the co-sponsor of the legislation with me. Great. You mentioned uh, big tech, uh, in particular, the social media monopolies. Do you think mm -hmm. there's an appetite to change Section uh, 230 that gives them so much freedom right now? I hope so. Uh, President Obama just gave a landmark speech on this out in, at Stanford, which I think is important that he was willing to go there and talk about it. Um, and what we have right now is immunity um, for um, any uh, activity that occurs on the internet with the exception of a narrow, and we did vote for a 230 change when it came to human trafficking. Um, and yet you have misinformation on vaccines, all kinds of things. So this is the example I use because people think, well, it's the internet, you know, people post things. Yeah, people can post things, but there should be obligations for the companies that are literally making trillions of dollars. Obligations of getting this disinformation out of there, get out obligations to get hateful speech, lies about vaccines in the middle of a pandemic. But I think of it this way. 
if you're in a theater, so let's get out of the internet and think of it this way. A theater, someone yells fire, a crowded theater. That is not protected speech. Now let's say the theater had didn't have good um, exits or marked exits, they might get sued for that. But let's say they had good exits, right? Well, the person who, if someone gets hurt leaving the theater, the person who yells fire is gonna be liable for this. All right, well, what if the multiplex theater decided to to broadcast the yelling of fire or something like that in all of its multiplex theater. That's what algorithms do. They actually yep. inflate the value of speech, good and bad. And when it is a certain kind of speech and they are amplifying it, they would, if it was in a multiplex theater, for sure they'd be sued for that. The internet right now, these major platforms are immune for suit for even doing things like amplifying hate speech and amplifying things and that helps them right they get more clicks they get more views of their ads and they're making money off of it so we have to view them as they are they are profit making monopolies it doesn't mean we want them to go away it doesn't mean we don't value their products and use them every single day of course we do it means there's got to be some rules of the road that's the rules of the road i talked about with journalism it's the rules of the road that i passed a bill through the senate judiciary committee the first since the dawn of an internet on uh, competition policy that you can't self-preference your own products above competitors just because you have the monopoly platform you can't treat google restaurant reviews better than Yelp restaurant reviews when you own a platform that is 90% market. That's what they've got at Google. Um, and so that is a pretty straightforward thing that we can do to, to restrain some of this monopoly power. And then of course, helping enforcers, getting the funding we need. Senator Grassley and I, all these bills I just discussed are strongly bipartisan, um, including helping the FTC and the Department of Justice to get the funds to take on these cases. So I cannot tell you how important it is because nothing's been done. They have 2,700 lobbyists and I have three lawyers. Senator Klobuchar, thank you so much for this important conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Happy Press yes. Freedom Day. Well, we'll thank you. you. I'm pretty excited. See, we could have a good discussion taking on the biggest companies in the world as I am. You're just asking the questions, Dana, as you should do. Um, and, um, and life goes on and we will go on to fight the next battle. But this is what freedom of the press is all about in this country, um, that you can say what you want um, as long as it doesn't, of course, cross the line. Um, and that is so important to have journalists that are looking under the hood when there is so much disinformation out there. So thanks for what you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.